Poland, uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. <laughs> Poland, probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland, sausages, <laughs> pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast. Hi, this is Małgorzata Bonikowska, and you're listening to episode 67 of Polcast, recorded and produced by me in Toronto. Today, we will travel many thousands of kilometers, and we will also travel in time, 75 years back. Well, let's start our Polcast journey. Liliana Arkuszewski lives in Ottawa. Her life is full of adventures. She spends half of each year in Mexico. And on her way to Canada in the early 1980s, she traveled across three continents. Years later, she wrote a book about her immigration experience. It was published in Polish and was titled Czebyło Warto, the Sejadzinsowy Kolumbów. Now, a few years later, her book was translated to English by Charles Kraszewski and published under the title, Was It Worth It? Columbus in Jeans. It's the book's new life. I reached Liliana in Ottawa. Liliana, when you were leaving Poland in 1981, did you ever think that you are going to be living in Canada, having published books about your whole big journey? I believed. I believed that I will live in Canada. That was my goal, and uh, I really wanted it. So it wasn't for sure that uh, we will come to Canada because we had to wait in Paris uh, for a visa. I never knew that I'm going to write the book, and it was one situation which uh, actually pushed me to it, gave me the idea and pushed me to it. But it was uh, happening like 15 years before I actually started writing it. And it was a situation that, uh, a very unpleasant situation when I lost the job. And it was a almost tragedy for me, but uh, it was an inspiration to write. But uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't write the book when I was working like full time with the job I previously had. It was very stressful and very time consuming job. So uh, I was waiting for the right moment. And that right moment came 15 years after. But the interesting thing, of course, from what I know, is that you were not really actually planning to go anywhere, right? I mean, you were very attached to Poland and you were always saying, okay, you know, you go away, but you always come back. So what made you leave? You know, this is the thing that you never know what a life is uh, written for you. I never wanted to leave. My brother-in-law wanted to leave. So my sister wanted to leave. My husband wasn't sure. But uh, I'm very close to my sister, so we always wanted to be together. But I still was saying that better poor, but in my own country. And the situation which actually created the change was situation in Peru when I had a very close friend, and she was a Polish girl, 
from Polish parents, mother and father, but she lived in Argentina. And then she met a man who was a surgeon in Peru from Lima. And uh, so she moved to Lima and worked in Peru for the company my father worked, and she was my father's secretary. So we became very close, and uh, when the time uh, was coming for me to leave Peru, that was her suggestion. Why don't you emigrate? And I said, like, I cannot emigrate because I can't picture myself leaving my friends and family and living, starting life in different country. But she was just to make sure that I wasn't thinking about Peru because we all knew that Peru wasn't the perfect country to emigrate. So she said, why don't you go to Canada? And I said, why Canada? She said that my husband got the contract in Toronto and we spent there five years and that was the best five years of my life. So Canada, just stuck in my head and uh, I I don't know it was curiosity but it was just to me it was a destiny somehow so in 1981 you leave Poland and then because what we know from the book because that's what you describe in the book you take us through three continents there's so many adventures on the way and at the end of this there is a question was it worth it when you live in one place then you Come, back, uh, come to another place, you compare everything. You compare food, you compare climate, you, you just observing everything and, you know, meeting different people, different mentalities and stuff like that. So when you're comparing, you always have some things which are, which were better in the country you left. I had a few situations that I wasn't happy. And during those situations, I was asking myself that question, was it worth it? You know, we went through not an easy time to, like my daughter was one day saying, you know, you started from like like scratch, like you were born like a baby. You as an adult had to learn how to talk because we didn't know English when we came, right? So it was everything new, everything was discovery actually. And uh, and uh, it was, you know, a few situations that I actually thought about it. And believe it or not, when I decided to write the book, I didn't even think of other title than this. But it has another part, which is Columbus in Jeans. OK, where does this come from? We had uh, books which we read during the school time about people who emigrated from Poland to different countries because of the war, mainly. And all those books were really sad books. My experience was totally different. My experience was mostly happy. It was full of optimism and, and beliefs that we are going to live in a better country. So for that reason, I was uh, trying to explain in the title what generation I was from. Right. Because now new generation, like lots of Polish people emigrate to Europe, right, to to England, for example, to Ireland, for example. But uh, we left for Canada. But those are the 80s. So we cannot actually say that we are a new generation of emigrants. Right. That was 30 something years ago. People who were wearing jeans, that was our generation, first generation in Poland were wearing jeans. 
So we decided it's going to be, you know, Columbus in jeans. Mm-hmm. In Columbus because of what? Discovering America? Discover, yeah, discovering not only America, discovering, you know, many countries. The book has, as you mentioned before, the book has lots of places to, to be discovered and, and read about and Mexico, America, Peru, and uh, lots of places in Europe, right, which I haven't been before, like Paris. I dreamt about it, but I never never been there before. <laughs> so that was the first time when I had a chance to see Paris and actually live in Paris for eight months. It was when I emigrated. Now, the book was written first in Polish. Mainly, I have to say, and I have to admit that I didn't feel my English is good enough to write so many nuances. I knew the book is going to be tricky to write, and I wanted this book to be to be novel, a story with the emotions. Every time I was visiting Poland and visiting my friends, they were so curious. How was it? How how I managed to to start the life from the beginning without the money, without the language, without anything. They didn't have a clue how good Canada was for emigrants, how um, the government helped us. We were we came here on a landed immigrant visa, so we had a big help from, from Canadian government. So because Polish people were so interested and I knew that if I write it in English, they won't be able, they won't have a chance to read it. And I wanted them to, to know all that. But then after a, after a while, you decided that it's time for the English version of the book, which now gives it a new life and gets to completely new people. Many immigrants, right, uh, are interested in the immigrant experience. How did this English translation came about? I wanted to translate this book, and then I stopped wanting it. Then I wanted it again, and then I stopped wanting it. The main reason was the financial reason. And the process is not easy either. So I just had to really dedicate myself to it. And uh, I had a translator who, to me, was the best one. Uh, His name is Charles Kraszewski. And the way I've heard about him, I understood that he was from Polish parents, but he was brought up in the United States. So he was educated in the United States. And now he's working uh, working as a professor on a university and linguistics. So uh, to me, the perfect background, and uh, I also look into internet to to check more and find out more about him. And uh, I found out that he was many times um, nominated for awards and uh, award-winning translator. Translation is a tricky, tricky thing because it also needs the talent. You can be excellent writer, but you might not be able to translate. And I can say something about it because I was working for quite a few years in the publishing industry and advertising industry. I published a Polish book. It was uh, 2012, and uh, I got the translation this year. It took all altogether took seven years. It is a long process and it's time-consuming process again. And uh, me as an author, I'm you know attached to it. This this book is my baby. I took it also uh, very emotionally, and the, the work was much harder when you take it that way. 
As I know also, you were um, looking um, at a number of people who were interested in translating your book into English, and then you chose the guy that you did. And I'm just curious, what made you choose him? How, in what way was he better than anybody else? I sent two pages which I chose to the guy I wanted then to other people who were suggested by uh, Piazza, Polish Institute of Art and Science. I sent those, the same two pages to those two women. They were actually women. And uh, I can't say that any of them was bad. They were all proper. But my translator was the only one who could translate my emotion, not only words, but my emotions. And uh, his words and his uh, style of writing spoke to me. Are you happy with what came out of this translation? I am very happy with the translation. First, when I started reading it, I realized the book is not translated to American and Canadian English. And that was that was an easy thing for me because while I was reading it and checking it and editing it, I had to use dictionary and British dictionary because the book was translated into British English. So there were, or there are in the books, many words which I didn't understand. Not only words, but sayings. And, uh, and it, was, it was tricky. The book is everywhere. The book is in South Africa, is in in Australia, and I already had the, already had a review from person who read the book in Australia. The book is everywhere in the states, including New York, Canada, obviously, and uh, many places in Europe: France, Germany, Sweden, you name it. So. The book is there. I just got the the email from uh, my uh, nephew that uh, who lives in Luxembourg, and he purchased the book from Luxembourg. So, you know, I'm hoping that if the people from different places read the book and they like it, which I hope, which I believe, I should say, the book will spread. Are you a typical immigrant? Yes, I am. In what way? I... Uh, I am emigrant because I live in a multicultural country and I think I've changed during those 30-something years, 37 years, my mentality changed. And I see that. I see that every time I go uh, to Poland and, uh, as you know, I speak Polish and uh, probably without the accents that what I think. I adapted to Canada and to the States, and uh, I'm living half a year, like winter in Mexico, so also to Mexicans. I I feel even in me, there are different mentalities and um, broad understanding of, of different culture and being familiar with different culture. I don't know if you can be as familiar with different culture uh, living, you know, like in Europe, for example, in one country probably will never happen. So, yes, I understand this. I'm very happy that I live in Canada because we are a happy country and people trying to live with peace. So I think all of it makes me, you know, immigrant. And my daughter is aware that she is immigrant. She married Mexican who is immigrant. So we, we carry on. 
that way of living, I would say, as immigrants, starting from zero and having, you know, prioritizing our lives and our adventures and our needs and situation to day by day, month by month. If you compare Liliana from 1981, who was leaving Poland, and Liliana in 2019, they're two different people? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Besides that, like as, as I'm saying different culture, I was working uh, in that publishing company who was specializing in the uh, northern dialects from Nunavut. So for many years, 13 years, I think it was. And uh, I learned so much that it wouldn't be possible if I live in Poland to know and to understand, you know, knowing is one thing, seeing is one thing, but to understand it and to feel it and is completely different. So that, that I, I wouldn't have a chance even to, to know as much, you know, like sometimes people saying, I would like to travel. To me, traveling is not only seeing the, the facades of the buildings of history, but meeting people and seeing their culture, how they are, how they act, how they dance, how they sing, what is important for them. So, yeah, I'm a completely different person, completely different person than I was before. Malkosu, there is one more thing. Living in Canada, you are much, much more open to, to everything, to every subject. You, you just cannot live in a box like, you know, many people living in one country, not seeing, not feeling it, as I mentioned it. You live in a box, but here we cannot. We have to be open-minded and try to understand what we like each other. So it's, it's, it's a great opportunity, actually, to, to live in a country like this. So was it worth it? Yes, it was worth it. It was worth it because I feel much richer inside, knowing all everything and experiencing everything I had a chance to to experience. It, it gave me that 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 wisdom that you know the variety of feelings, the, the your needs change, your dream change, everything changed. So for that, I'm very grateful, and for that, I will say yes, definitely, it was worth it for me. To learn more about the book and Liliana Arkuszewski, please visit our website mypodcast.com.
My good friend, Ellie Rubenstein, a Holocaust educator, writer, and filmmaker, religious leader at Congregation Habonim, a Toronto synagogue founded by the Holocaust survivors, Canadian director of the March of the Living and creator of March of Remembrance and Hope, with whom I have worked on a number of projects and who was featured in two episodes of podcast, called me three years ago to ask me if I would interview a very special person, the last righteous among nations in Canada, Mr. Franciszek Pasławski, then 94, saved three Jewish women during the war, risking his life and the lives of his family members. Ellie and I, with the camera crew, visited Mr. Pasławski, and it was a moving afternoon full of memories. In the interview, I heard how it all happened. Then this and other footage was made into a documentary, without a doubt, directed and produced by Ellie Rubinstein, and I had a great honor of being an associate producer and translator of that film. Mr. Pasławski passed away in his sleep on September 20th, 2019, this year, in Canada. This podcast segment is in his honor to tell our listeners his story and to let them listen to the memories of those who owe him their lives as well as the lives of their children and grandchildren. Before World War II, Buczacz, a town located in eastern Poland between Tarnopol and Czernowitz, had a population of approximately 20,000, of whom about 10,000 were Jewish. Buczacz was a significant spiritual center for Galicia's Jews. Simon Wiesenthal was among its most famous citizens. In 1941, Buczacz was invaded by Nazi Germany. Together with local Ukrainian collaborators, they proceeded to murder most of the town's Jews. Mass executions near Buchach, deportations to nearby slave labor camps, as well as transports to the camp of Beuzhets, spelled the end of the Buchach Jewish community. Soviet forces attempted to liberate the town on March 23, 1944, but the German army recaptured the town soon thereafter. On July 21, 1944, when Soviet forces liberated Buchach for good, less than a hundred Jewish survivors remained. Among them were Mina Salzman, born in 1902, Regina Zuchler, Mina's sister, born in 1917, and Bina Salzman, Mina's daughter, born in 1923. Bina's sister, Runya Salzman, was murdered at age 11. Bina's father, Moses, was murdered in Ravaruska, or Belgians, at the age of 56. This is the story of how the three women were saved. Mr. Pasławski told his story in an interview with me. For the purpose of the film, without doubt, I translated it into English subtitles, which I now will present to you.
Bo to jest województwo tarnopolskie, powiat pod Hajcem. I attended high school in Buczacz, three grades, which I finished in 1941 because the Soviets did not close schools. One of my classmates was Bina Salzman. In the photo that Mr. Pasławski showed me, he says, I am sitting next to my teacher, Dr. Regina Zuchler. She was the best teacher. It was thanks to her that I became the best student in our class. The photo is from 1941. Our class had many students. About 40 more are not in this picture. Many of these in the photos are Jews. All the Jews in this photograph, except Bina and Regina, were killed by the Germans. I felt that a terrible harm was being done. I felt very sorry. They were my classmates. We went to school together. We played together. The Jews were hiding in many places, mostly in Polish homes. At some point, a huge number of Soviet guerrillas entered Buczacz. Everybody thought it was the Red Army, so all these people came out of hiding thinking that they were already safe. The Germans ran away from the Soviets, but this situation lasted for two, three weeks. Then the Soviets withdrew, and the Germans returned. Then all the Jews went into hiding again, anywhere they could, including a local convent. Ultimately, the Germans took all the Jews to the ghetto. Among them were Mina, Bina's mother, Bina, and her aunt, our teacher, Regina Zuchler. Then the Germans liquidated the ghetto and packed all the Jews in the train cars to transport them to Auschwitz. Well, actually, my mother didn't talk too much about this period, but what she told us is that uh, after the raid of the Nazis on Buchach, the village where they lived, they took her father to a work camp. Her sister, when she saw the Nazis taking her father, she started running after him and the Germans shot her in front of the eyes of my mother. My mother, together with my grandmother and her aunt, jumped off the train, which was on the way to, to a death camp. And after jumping, they tried to go back to their village. And I, I didn't know exactly, and I didn't understand exactly how they found Franek. But all I know is that they, they learned at the same school, and my aunt, Regina Zuller, was his teacher. So he suggested to take all the three to his house. The train from Buczacz was going through Monasterzyska, a small town where I went to elementary school. In Monasterzyska, at the railway station, it suddenly occurred to Dr. Zuchler, well, Franek lives close by, and we have an opportunity to escape. They asked a Jewish guard to let them go to the station washroom. When the train left, they came out. They came to my house and the teacher said, we've escaped from the transport train, could you hide us? I didn't think and immediately said, sure, no problem, you're my guests. I took the risk immediately, without hesitation. I didn't tell my parents that they were Jews. I told them that they were my friends whose house was bombed. After two weeks, my parents knew they were Jews anyway. Right at the beginning, I told them that there was no way they could be hiding. I said, you have to live here with our family as my Catholic friends. You mustn't hide and you mustn't say that you were Jews. You have to go to church and learn the Lord's Prayer. He didn't tell his parents 
that they were Jewish and he took them to the church every Sunday and they behaved like Christians. He endangered himself and his parents also, because if they were caught, they would have been killed. They would have been shot by the Nazis. And this was the, the crucial period which, uh, because of this, their life was saved. After these three months, they were hiding in another place. And then uh, until the, the, the Russian came and they conquered the, the city because the butchers, the city was on the border between Russia and uh, Germany. So the Russian came and they conquered the city and the Germans ran away. And then at the end of the war, they went to a camp of uh, people who went from the Holocaust in the north of Italy. And there my mother uh, met my father and they got married. My father, he's also from Butach. He was uh, in Russia during the war. My mother had a huge family with relatives from the father's side and from the mother's side and were, they were all killed during the Holocaust, except my mother, my aunt and my grandmother, which were saved by Franek. Soon after, in 1944, I had to run away. Mr. Pasławski was sentenced to death by Ukrainian nationalists collaborating with the Germans. So I went to the Kielce region. In order to make sure that no harm would be done to them, I told my mother, they have to be saved. Time passed and we kept thinking about one another, but, but both they and us. When the teacher was dying, she called Bina and said, we were saved by Franek and we forgot about him. You have to do all you can to find him. They contacted Professor Korngut, who also lived in Poland. He had been a Jewish teacher of Latin. The Jews were in touch with each other, so even before Ergina passed, Bina contacted Professor Korngut. He approached the Red Cross, which found me. I was very well known in Poland as an architect involved in rebuilding Dańsk. I got many medals for my work. Mr. Pasławski showed me numerous medals displayed on the wall of his house. Professor Korngut, with the help of the Red Cross, found me and said to me, Franciszek, my friends from Israel are looking for you. He gave them my address and I got a letter from them saying that they had been looking for me. And they wrote, we're sending you a package. In that package, among other things, there were oranges, which I had never eaten before. This was my very first time. Jaffa oranges. We reconnected. In April 1987, I went to Israel. Bina's granddaughters invited me to their school and introduced me as the man who saved their grandmother. I saw the whole country. We all went to Jerusalem and before, when we were still in Tel Aviv, Bina's husband asked me to prepare a speech for the ceremony at Yad Vashem, when I would be honored. I prepared my speech, which I read out and which was broadcast on the radio in Poland. And then Mr. Pasławski handed me a copy of that speech. And right there, then, without any preparation, I just um, read it uh, simultaneously, translating it to English. So here we go. This is the translation, which is part of the film. It's my privilege and honor to um, take part in today's amazing and fantastic ceremony in this historic city, which is uh, sacred to all to the main uh, religions of the world in Jerusalem. 
the honorary title and the medal which was granted to me, I think, as a, I think about it as an amazing honor that one can even think about in one's life. I also think about this honor uh, as a special, as, as, a, as an evidence of great uh, respect, not only to me personally, but also to my parents, who also, risking their lives, were giving shelter to those who needed it to save the life of other people. I want to express incredible respect of all people who were innocently murdered, tortured, and died because of Nazi perpetrators, as well as those who helped them and supported them during the Second World War. The worst um, victims of German deeds were the Jews and the Poles. Uh, I also want to uh, wish the state of Israel further successes and wonderful development and progress. I also want to thank and wish all of you and the whole world live life in peace. Thank you very much. Shalom, Franciszek Wasławski, Polska, Poland. My mother brought him to Israel. He planted a tree and went to Yad Vashem. And then 15 years ago, we also went to Poland and we met him and his family. We went there to see Buchac, the place where my mother was born and raised. And she was very excited to see the place, to see the house, which stayed almost the same as they left him 50 years or 60 years ago. We were very excited to see him again. These are cars that Franek used to send and is still sending my mother, is still sending Vinka every Christmas and every Hanukkah and even in Passover and greetings for the Happy New Year or Happy Holidays. The knowledge of the, there are some good people, not a lot, but there, there are some good people like Franek. It's uh, very important and it affected the, our lives. Actually, he gave life to us. I have got a family, my sister Rachel have got a family, and we have got children, grandchildren. He gave the, the possibility for our present family to be here in Israel. I mean, if he didn't save my mother and my grandmother and the aunt, we won't be here. We thank him very much for what he did. It's a country. Dzisiejszy jako spełniony człowiek. Przemiałem na taką okazję i uratowałem ludzi. And then Bina's son spoke in Polish. This is the translation of what he said in really good Polish. Ja nie umiem tak mówić teraz dobrze po polsku, bo ja nie mam z kim mówić. A ja chciałem mówić, że pan był i jest bohaterem. I can't speak Polish very well anymore as I have no one to speak to. But I would like to say that you were and you are a hero. What you did for my mother, for my grandmother and my aunt is something that few people are capable of doing. I think you are special and I hope that we will see each other in October when I'm coming to Toronto. I wish you a long life, joy with your children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. one more wonderful occasion on March 17th, 2016, 
Franciszek Pasławski was honored for his heroic efforts at a special program at Congregation Haboni in Toronto, Ellis Synagogue, marking the opening of a new museum in Markowa, Poland, dedicated to preserving the legacy of Polish righteous among nations. He was introduced by Piotr Jasem, Polish Jew, president of the Polish Jewish Heritage Foundation of Toronto. Uh, Mr. Pasławski, as I said, is uh, almost 94, and uh, he's uh, likely the last uh, uh, man living in Canada today who bears uh, the esteemed title of righteous among the nations. And it is indeed one of the greatest honors of my life as someone whose own father was saved by the righteous, to announce to you that Mr. Pasławski has made the effort to be here with us tonight in person. <laughs> Mr. Pasławski, we thank you from the depth of our souls on behalf of the Jewish people, the Polish people, indeed, on behalf of all humanity. Thank you. Huge surprise for me. Thank you very much. May you rest in peace, true and unforgettable hero, Mr. Franciszek Pasławski. We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Today we're going to tell you how to make a beautiful Polish plum crumble. Peter recently visited our community's farmer's market and found some gorgeous Italian plums, which are perfect for baking. Italian plums have a dark purplish-blue color. The shape is unique, oblong like an egg or a little American football. Some folks call them empress plums because these are the ones used for making prunes. They're usually available in late summer or early fall. And they're great for baking because the flesh is dense and not as sweet as other plum varieties. Pick ones that are firm, but not hard. Peter brought home a huge bag full of these gorgeous plums. Thanks, hon. Then it was my turn to get busy. We had enough plums for two big pans of plum crumble, plus some leftovers. One pan we gave to the neighbors, and one pan went into the freezer to be saved for a potluck dinner next month, and we'll talk about the leftovers in a minute. Our Polish plum crumble is typically Polish because it is not too sweet 
And this is a really easy recipe. For the batter, we'll need butter, sugar, flour, baking powder, milk, four eggs, some vanilla extract, and the star of this cake, 24 Italian plums that have been cut in half and pitted. The stones come out very easily and you don't have to peel them. Preheat your oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Spray the bottom of a 10-inch by 15-inch pan with cooking oil. Then cut a piece of parchment to cover the bottom of the pan. Spray that parchment paper with the cooking oil. This should prevent the cake from sticking. You know, parchment paper is every baker's secret ingredient. Use a mixer to combine the ingredients per the directions in the recipe. Spread the dough in the pan. Place the plums, cut side up, evenly on top of the batter, about a half inch apart. And here's a good tip. If your plums are not fully ripe or pretty tart, before you put the plums on the batter, sprinkle them liberally with sugar and let them sit for about 45 minutes. Drain them well and then place them on the batter. The crumble topping is even easier. You'll need some soft butter, flour, brown sugar, and a bit of cinnamon. Combine it all per the directions in the recipe and sprinkle over the plums. This gets baked for 40 to 45 minutes at 350 degrees Fahrenheit or until a toothpick inserted into the center comes out clean. If the crumb topping starts to brown too quickly, place a piece of aluminum foil over the top of the cake. Take the pan out of the oven and let it cool down. Then cut into squares around the plums. Each pan is supposed to yield about 32 squares, but frankly, we cut our pieces bigger and top them off with whipped cream or ice cream. Here's another tip. Do you remember at the top when I said we had some leftover plums? So I cut them into slices, mixed in some fresh peach slices, mixed the fruit with a little sugar and cornstarch, and spread it into a small Pyrex pan. Then I made more crumble topping, but added some oats this time, spread the mix on the top of the fruit, and baked it in a 400 degree Fahrenheit oven for 30 minutes. It came out a little sweeter, but it was so delicious. Oh, yes it was. The full recipe for our Polish crumb crumble and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on September 23, 2018. has only just started, but it's already getting cold. Nothing can change the fact that winter is coming, alas. There are some places, though, where people love winter. Matilda Lis is a wonderful, vivacious, young Polish-Canadian woman who grew up in a theater family. She's the daughter of actress Agata Piritowska, whom we featured on podcast, and the granddaughter of Mariana Wotarska, an accomplished Polish actress who created a unique, one-of-a-kind theater in Toronto, which travels the world. Matilda inherited the soul of an adventurer from her mother and grandmother. She travels all over the world and has fallen in love with Dawson City, famous for the Klondike Gold Rush. Dawson City is in Yukon, 
the smallest and westernmost of Canada's three territories. Matilda spends all her summers there. I reached her in Dawson City. How far are you from where I am? How far are you from Toronto? 6,500 kilometers. Right. Tell us exactly where you are. I am in Dawson City, Yukon. This is not your first time, right, Matilda? How many times have you gone there? This is my sixth season in Dawson City. So you always go for the summer? Yep. Why? Uh, well, it's a wonderful little town, and uh, it booms in the summertime, and the sh season is really short and intense, and the, it's very busy, and there's lots of work, and we've come to love it, and we have nice jobs that we really enjoy, and we just come back every year, and we work for five months. What do you do? Um, I help run a boutique hotel and pub, which is from the Gold Rush era. Dawson City, that's where it all happened, right? The Klondike. Exactly. How, how alive is this whole thing there? The memories, the stories? It's very much alive. Parks Canada bought up a lot of the old buildings and they restored them. Um, and they do tours and there's like the old paddle wheelers, the old saloons and the theater and the the dredges that dug up the creeks to find the gold. They've all been restored and you can enter these buildings with um, interpreters and they tell you all about the history. Do, do people come from all over the world or is it more of a Canadian attraction? All over the world. Lots of Europeans, lots of people from Germany, lots of Swiss people, lots of Australians, Americans too. There's large tour groups that come through with a group called Holland America. Um, also, we are located um, at a tip of a loop that's only accessible where the border is open for four months of the year. So if, you, if a lot of people are driving from uh, across Canada and America to go into Alaska, they come through Dawson. Do you remember the first time when you came? Yes, of course. <laughs> How was it? How, what was your first impression? It's a cute little town and everything is like uh, really colorful and, and kind of like rugged. And it's just everyone is so friendly and it's such a tight community where everyone knows each other and helps each other. Yet there's also an artistic community here. There's an arts college and a cultural center and it's very alive. So when I first got here, I was just like, wow, it's so fun and funky and colorful and interesting and quirky. But how did you get there the first time? Was it that you just had everything arranged and planned to go and get that job or you just went as a tourist? I came here my first summer to work, but I didn't have any work lined up. And it was more of a road trip adventure with um, my boyfriend and one of my best friends. And uh, we had a friend who was a river guide in the Yukon the year before. And his pictures looked amazing and the landscape was so beautiful and the wilderness and the space. And we just said, we have to go there. And we had met one per other person who had come up to Dawson. And they're like, yep, there's lots of young people, lots of jobs. Just check it out. People stay, work the summer, travel winter. And so we came and we got, I got, worked at the recycling center. I worked at a saloon and we had so much fun that we just, came back the next year. Huh. What's the local population of that town when everybody leaves? Um, just under 2,000. Mm -hmm. So it is really small. 
it's small. <laughs> Who lives there? Are these people who've been living there for generations? Some people, yes. We There is a strong First Nations community, and they've definitely been here for generations. Um, one of my close friends who grew up here, her grandmother was, or her great-grandmother was in the Gold Rush, an important family. But a lot of people are like us. They came for a summer for summer work and they've stayed like my boss she we have a casino here with a can can show and she was one of the dancers in the 80s and now she has a very wonderful business and she's been here ever since but she's originally from Vancouver have you ever thought of staying there for good I get asked this question almost every day <laughs> but um for me I don't like I don't know if I could um well, the winters are very long and dark because <laughs> we are we are 450 kilometers from the Arctic Circle. And so in the winter, it's very cold and very dark and very long. But some most of the locals love the winter because it's time to enjoy and take time off and and uh, spend quality time with your friends and family. Everything slows down. Are there kids and schools? Yep, we have a school here up to grade 12. Tell me about the landscapes, because you said landscapes are amazing, but isn't it like treeless bare? No. Um, if you, so where we are, we it's a lot of spruce and poplars and aspens. Um, the trees tend to be smaller than you will have down south. Um, but once you go a bit more north or above tree line, it, it's mostly brush and and moss and lichen like um an hour and a half away from town there's the territorial park of tombstone and there it's just magical it's so beautiful and the tundra is just so colorful and so diverse but around town here it's um it's smaller trees and mostly spruce and it's just really pretty it's so pretty you obviously are in love with it. I love it. Tell me about tell me about the First Nations people who live there. Um, how do they feel about you know this place being in a way taken over by tourists? I guess in some ways the it's been happening for a long time. The First Nations are the Trondekwetchen, and um, they do have their own government um, in town. Um, I don't know exactly how they feel about the tourism, but um, I think that they. Um, appreciate it because it boosts the community in so many different aspects including our cultural center and education and all of that and of course Yukon being really ruled and governed by first nations right have you learned any of their language uh i just know thank you <laughs> masicho masicho i think that sounds wonderful and in response you go uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> that's great any any stories from those days that you heard which stuck with you somehow well fascinating in the gold rush dawson city was one of the biggest cities on the west coast there was over thirty thousand people in dawson city which is insane to think about when you look at where it looks like now it's not there's not a lot of room and back then it was Dawson City is originally on a swamp, um, and they was there was thirty thousand people, 
and they just came up over the Chilkoot Trail and you had to, if you from Skagway, if you wanted to come to Dawson over the Chilkoot, you had to, they would let you in across the border if you had um, one year's supply of food. And you had to carry this with a sleigh up over the Chilkoot and then it would come up with the boats up the Yukon River. It was just so rough and tough back then. It's so fascinating to see all these remnants of these people who came and worked so hard and for this gold fever. Why, I know there were fortunes made, but I guess the majority was just a failure, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But there's there's still gold in the creeks. There's the mining and the exploration is still really strong. Well, Matilda, that's not the only place where you go. I mean, I don't know. How many countries have you traveled to? Have you ever counted? <laughs> um, definitely more than 10 on my, off the top of my head. <laughs> and they're never places that everybody goes to. Like, they would not be things like Egypt to see the pyramids. You go, you go for other reasons. Where do you go and why do you go? I really like to be outside. I like to play outside. So a lot of ways that I travel is to enjoy the outdoors and nature and learn about cultures. One thing that my partner Raphael and I like to do is long distance trekking. So we walk for hundreds of kilometers and this way we always will stop in villages or remote areas and we get to meet people and really take in the landscape and the culture slowly, which is really nice. Or we rock climb. This winter we were rock climbing in Southeast Asia and it was so fun. <laughs> you seem to be a very adventurous young person. <laughs> what was the country that somehow resonated the most with you? If you can even make a choice like this, maybe it's impossible. It is a very hard choice. <laughs> um, but one, one place for sure is India. Um, and I think it's on a lot of people's lists as a, as a country that marked them in their travels. The first time I went, I went two times. The first time I went, I was with friends and we just backpacked around the entire country, north and south, to get a feel for all the different regions and foods and people. And it was so fun. And the second, and that's where I met Raphael. Um, and then the second time I went back with Raphael and we went straight to the Himalayas and we walked 600 kilometers there. And it was so such a different experience too but that place is just it just sticks with you and influences you in subconscious ways I think the south is very chaotic and there's so many people but somehow like in one day you'll have the best and worst experience simultaneously and then it'll everything just happens at once there <laughs> that's interesting a lot of people say that it changes you forever yeah and it definitely did like my it was one of the first big trips that I did and after that everything changed because I met my partner there what are the other countries where you have been oh i lived in south africa for a year um i've been to patagonia twice and i've been to china and thailand laos indonesia australia and uruguay and brazil and then Europe, of course, Poland. <laughs> but that doesn't count. <laughs> what do you mean it doesn't count? Because you're Polish? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, second home. <laughs> uh, 
That's right. You were born in Poland or you were born in Canada? No, you were born in Poland. I was born in Poland. Yeah. But you were a baby when you came. Eight months old. That's right. How come your Polish is so amazing? Because my grandma and my mom are very amazing. <laughs> that is very true. Do you know that I interviewed your mother for podcast? No, I did not. When we talked about her, um, you know, her theater. But you also acted in that theater. Um, yes, I did brief cameos. I'm, I'm very proud of them. They've, they're such an inspiration and so, so wonderful and hardworking and motivated. I'm just, I can't say how proud I am of them. They're incredible women. So you're the third generation of these strong women. When are you coming back, by the way, from the Yukon? To Toronto? Mm-hmm. In November. Mm-hmm. So that's when it starts really being ugly and cold and wet and... Well, it's already the end of fall now. The leaves are off the trees. Um, it's freezing at night. Um, but today I went for a hike. It's been it's beautiful, crisp autumn weather. But in two weeks I leave and I head down to BC to do some visits and some hiking and climbing. And then Toronto for family time. Until when? Until January, where we go to New Zealand this year. Now, when you do these other trips, uh, when you when you travel, for example, next time, which is New Zealand, are you going to be working? So, well, we've worked in the past. When we were in Australia, we worked. And then some years we've left here earlier to work in wineries in, in BC or Ontario. Um, but this year we won't work until we come back here. Yeah, well, we're going to hike the South Island. Oh, that's amazing. That's a fantastic life. I'm very happy. Yes, I'm very grateful, very lucky to have lots of opportunities. But you have created this for yourself, right? Nobody created it for you. This is, it simply means that it's possible if one really wants. Of course. You just have to make those decisions. What does it take? Uh, well, you have to decide what kind of lifestyle you want. And then do everything you can to pursue it. Not everyone would like the lifestyle I have, but I love it and it makes me happy. So it's what I want. Are there any disadvantages of this lifestyle? Well, one day it would be nice to have a nest, but the disadvantage is where to have that nest. That would be probably a big problem for you, right? <laughs> You've seen too much. <laughs> exactly. But And also um, being away from the family for too long is hard from my mom and my grandma and my brothers but I know that I will see them twice a year when I transition through Toronto and we spend some good quality time together how long are you guys planning to do this the I don't know <laughs> that's the thing it's hard to it, it's definitely hard to go back to a big city after being here because the the quietness and the different pace and there's no traffic <laughs> so sometimes you know it is hard to imagine yourself being back in a metropolis is there anything from that big city life that you miss sometimes oh definitely <laughs> uh food diverse food diversity yeah we have um two small grocery stores here that do really well to keep a diverse shop but and there's not there's a couple there's a few restaurants but there's not um you know that city diverse culinary diversity that uh big cities have to offer 
and you know like uh cultural shows and events we do really well here with music and concerts and trying to get artists to come up and perform growing up in toronto i definitely got spoiled with um the diversity of it and the amount of it have you ever met any polish people out there there was a couple of polish tourists this year and then there's one or two other Polish people who live here, Dan Sokolowski, and he runs our International Short Film Festival, which happens, in, unfortunately, in February when I'm not here, but it's a big, big success. So you absolutely have to say hello from me to Dan Sokolowski and um, his film festival, because maybe we should interview him one day also. Yeah, it's definitely a unique place for that. Like We have a music festival in the summertime, a film festival, and um, lots of artists. We have an art school. Um, so it's like a first year university course or university um, year of art school here, which is, brings so many interesting projects. We have a, a, a couple galleries. It's so nice. And there's so many young creative people here who are motivated to maintain this kind of lifestyle and community that is vibrant and interested. This is this amazing thing. When anybody goes to the Yukon and all these places, this is this incredible lights, northern lights. Tell me about those. The light here is so beautiful. But not only are there northern lights that start at the mid-August until the spring, but in the summertime, because we're so far north, there's no night. Just like just before summer solstice and after summer solstice, for basically June and July, there's no night. So you can read your newspaper outside at four in the morning. Does it make it difficult for you to sleep or you, people get used to it and they just sleep whenever it's daylight? You get used to it, but sometimes you forget to eat dinner because it's so at 9 p.m. It feels like it's 1 p.m. It's so bright. It's in, it's so crazy. And um, the Northern Lights is just, everyone needs to witness them. They're so beautiful. And they're so different, right? The colors change. They're just so unpredictable, I think. It's like somebody's painting in the sky. They move, they move so quickly. They dance. It's so cool. Now, the fact that you have all this uh, uh, daylight 24 uh, hours a day, that means that in the wintertime, there is simply no light. Is that right? Like, it's really dark 24-7? No, but there is, um, there's a small window of daylight. <laughs> How long? <laughs> well, from, from what I've heard, it was um, from about noon until maybe 3. But and then and then there's like a glow and then it's dark and then and then it's minus 40. What do people do? Well, government people work, the hospital works, city works. But then a lot of people, they go, there's a hockey team, there's curling clubs, there's all sorts of different workshops and um, classes you can take. And then there's people, there's Christmas bazaars, there's concerts, there's film festivals, there's lots of dinners to be had and fires to be made and books to be read. People take time for themselves and it's nice. People who live here year round, they love the winter because it's everything slows down and the north if there is no sunlight, but the northern lights are dancing and the moonlight all the time and they're very inspired by it. Would you expect this kind of image of this faraway place thousands of kilometers north? so culturally lively and with so much to do. 
and winter being the time of fun, which people look forward to. This is the way to look at it. To see Matilda's photos of Yukon and to learn about Dawson City, please visit our website, mypodcast.com. And as always, I strongly encourage you not only to look at our website, mypodcast.com, but also go to our page on Facebook. On a daily basis, you can find a lot of interesting information about Poland. This is taken care of by Tomek Knia. Thank you so much. These are really incredible stories, articles, and videos. So, Facebook, podcast, we would love to see you there. Like them and share them. Well, it's this time that we talk about money. Podcast and I need your financial support. The crowdfunding campaign is continuing, and I want to thank all of those who are helping Podcast. Like all other podcasts, this one counts and depends on our listeners. What is free for you to listen to is not free for me to make. I have to pay for the server, Mailchimp to send my newsletters, equipment, and last but not least, work that goes into producing it. Well, would you take me out for a coffee or a donut once a month, or maybe lunch? If you would, but cannot because we are too far apart, please support Podcast with an equivalent of that. Go to mypodcast.com/support and make a pledge. That would be highly appreciated. Well, I leave you with a special piece of music. It's played by a true master of the piano and a popular face in Dawson City, Dwayne Kelly. He's playing on a more than 100-year-old piano in the downtown hotel in Dawson City. The recording comes from a video called Dwayne Kelly, Genius of the Klondike, meant to help Dwayne. In January 2018, his home, an old houseboat on the Klondike River, burned down in a blaze during an Arctic cold spell of temperatures around minus 40 degrees. He lost everything except the clothes he wore. You can find the link to the full video with many more recordings and the story on our website, mypodcast.com, in the story about Matilda Lees. Thank you for being with me and listening to episode 67 of Podcast. I'll see you, or you will hear me, next month. <laughs>